Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of March 2020 and this is our 150th episode. On today's podcast, I speak to Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, patron of the WFA and Professor of History at St Andrews University. He talks to me about the political, social and economic consequences of the Great War for the major combatant powers immediately after the armistice. I spoke to Hugh from his home in Scotland. Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I've been uh, interested in the Great War, I'm now 70, uh, probably since I was a small boy. Uh, My grandfather served in the First World War, and I certainly knew that. He was still suffering from his wounds. Um, He died when I was eight, uh, back in 1958. But he never really talked about the war. Standard cliche, of course. just after he died, though, my parents took me to Belgium and France for the first time, and we visited the, the battlefields. And in those days, there was still a great deal visible in terms of debris on the ground, uh, shell cases, uh, corkscrews for barbed wire, and so on, even the remains of rifles and so on. And I remember my father telling me when I wanted to pick them up that I should leave them there. Um, but what changed all this from being, you know, something? a small small boy might well be interested in, was in 1980, Oxford University Press asked me whether I'd like to write a replacement for Crutwell's History of the First World War, which was then uh, really the only significant one-volume history around, apart from those written by Cyril Falls and Baz Little Hart. Um, and it had remained in print with Oxford University Press for just about 50 years, so they not unreasonably thought it was time to do it. And I thought, I'll be a mug to turn this down, and I'll be a mug to take it on. Um, And I took it on, and it's dominated the rest of my life. Now, today we're going to talk about the domestic aftermath and consequences of the Great War for um, a number of nations uh, in 1919 and 1920. Can you give us um, a brief overview of a number of those nations and what the situation was in those countries? I know that's a very broad question, and countries vary tremendously. Um, But if you could just give us a flavour of what the situation was. Well, I think probably the sensible thing to do first is just focus on what was common, whether you were on the side of the victors or of the defeated. First of all, countries were war-weary, and that it didn't matter, as I say, which side you were on uh, in terms of the desire, common desire, uh, across societies for the war to end. Second, there was a fear of revolution, sponsored, of course, in part and large part because of the revolutions in Russia, but also a sense that what the war had done had been to challenge the established order, to call in question particularly the status of monarchs, uh, and especially in the defeated countries, and also to call into question the status of uh, states which were empires, um, which were multinational empires, whether they were multinational empires within Europe, like Austria-Hungary, which really had no holdings outside Europe, or uh, at the other end of the scale, a multinational empire like the British Empire, which of course was global, and yet, unlike Austria-Hungary, was on the side of the victors. Both had 
cause to be concerned about their holds on empires. In the case of, of four empires, the Russian, the, the, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, and the Ottoman Empire, um, the war means collapse. Um, but we need to remember that even for those empires on the victorious side, Britain and France particularly, uh, the end of the war produced considerable strain. British troops remained committed from Ireland to India for the next five years, and French troops also are committed uh, not just in, in African colonies, but, for example, um, in supporting the whites in, in Russia and so on. So there is a sense, of course, of jubilation in the victorious powers, um, and we need to remember that the 11th of November 1918 in, in capitals like Paris and, and London is not a moment of silence or reflection, but a moment of partying and celebration, uh, but a great uncertainty as to what the future is going to, to bring. So uncertainty, and in large part that uncertainty is economic. The war has generated inflation. Most people's incomes have gone up, not in real terms, but in terms of the amount of currency that's actually in their pockets. Uh, and the societies which haven't taxed effectively, because for most societies have not taxed effectively during the war, um, have left a, a, a latent purchasing power, uh, which people are anxious to use. But of course, their money isn't worth very much because it's an inflated currency. So there's that issue. It's the issue of the return from military service of large numbers of, of people who were soldiers in wartime, but see themselves ultimately as citizens and civilians, and civilians who expect to be able to return to their uh, normal careers as they were before 1914. But very often those careers, those jobs don't exist any longer, and there are new jobs to be taken up. Um, it's a question of time and how quickly you can release men from military service and use them productively uh, in the economy. Uh, and that has to be staggered it has to be staged and the corollary of the return of those men from uniform is the removal of women from the workplace the first world war is sort of double whammy for uh, female employment we, we often exaggerate um, the degree to which the first world war brought women into employment what it really did in most european societies was cause them to change their employment so for example a great many will be in domestic service in 1914 very few would be in 1918 they would have moved into things like munitions production or other forms of public service and it's their jobs that are now vulnerable they don't necessarily want to go back to domestic service but at the same time uh, the munitions industries are contracting and those who are in employments which uh, men might take up again to find themselves under pressure to go so that the men can be absorbed when they return from the armed forces. So there's a great deal of economic volatility and uncertainty um, and nobody knows in 1918 quite how that's going to turn out. So what's the situation by the early mid-1920s in some of these countries? How have these sort of internal issues that the war has created played out? Well I think if you look at a perspective from, say, 1924, 1925, a great many countries could feel reasonably confident that the economic situation was beginning to stabilise and that um, there was a, a limited degree, but a degree of recovery. Uh, Germany, of course, had gone through hyperinflation um, in the immediate aftermath of the war. It's, broadly speaking, come through that after 1923. There is, as I say, some cautious optimism. Um, it's the slump when it comes in 1929, the Depression, 
that really knocks people back and takes them in many respects back to the situation that they were in in 1919, the feeling that you know they've struggled to, to, to rebuild their civilian peacetime lives and it simply hasn't worked. The other thing that has caused a massive difference is, is simply the, the map, what has happened to the map of Europe as a result of the peace settlements. The principle of national self-determination, which was one of the 14 points which Woodrow Wilson had promulgated in January 1918, meant that uh, there was to all, to all intents and purposes free-for-all um, at the end of 1918 in terms of ethnic groups establishing their majority claim to certain parts of Europe. Um, and that was extraordinarily complicated when you had populations mixed in with each other. New states emerge, uh, some of them, uh, or most of them indeed, by force of arms, then ratified by the peace settlements rather than created by the peace settlement and then extended, if you like, by force of arms. In 1919, as the peacemakers come to Paris, if you are living in the Balkans or you're living in East and Central Europe and you belong to a particular, a particular ethnic group, uh, then you take that moment to push your claim as hard as possible uh, and hope that you will get recognition from the peacemakers in Paris. And broadly speaking, that's what they have to do, the peacemakers in Paris. They have to recognize the reality on the ground because they don't have the military clout any longer as armies are being demobilized. They don't have the military clout any longer uh, to impose borders themselves. So 1919-23 sees a lot of fighting across Eastern and Central Europe and from the Baltic to the Balkans. One calculation is that 4 million more people are killed in that period of time. So in other words, uh, the equivalent of half the numbers killed in the years 1914-18 to in the armed forces that fight the First World War. And it continues to be, for many countries, a period of violence and, and uncertainty. Again, that has begun to stabilize by uh, the last of the peace treaties is signed in 1923, the Treaty of Lausanne, the one that recognizes um, the Turkish Republic, a case of defeat in the case of uh, the Ottoman Empire being defeated, defeat being turned into victory. And there is a hope that now what you have managed to do is to create a more stable order. But there is still a great deal of ethnic intermingling. I mean, the, the new Polish state, for example, which has had to fight to establish its frontiers, contains within it Germans who, when the moment comes in the late 1930s, will identify once again as Germans rather than Poles, and Ukrainians and Belarusians, uh, who, who, whom, again, the Soviet Union will want to identify as Russian in 1939. There's a lot at stake still, even if for the moment things seem stable. And what sort of in, what sort of international uh, impacts did these internal uh, civil wars, political tension, and economic problems have on the on the global order and, and the global political situation? Well, in 1919, the the peacemakers have tried to establish a really visionary global order which looks to the future. I mean, the, the the League of Nations is a genuine endeavor to produce a multilateral organization that will rid the world of war. I mean, Woodrow Wilson's hope, the hope of the American president, is this will be an organization to which disputes will be referred before they get to the point of armed conflict. And in some respects, of course, we should, although we, we now see that ambition as a failure, we need also to recognize how powerful its pull has been, because the United Nations, when it's set up after the Second World War, 
is still vested with very similar attributes. It has the additional sanction of armed force, if need be, um, and it reserves the right to use war in cases of self-defense. So it, it, it's, it, it recognizes that what happened in 1919 is unduly idealistic. But there is there a vision for a future order, a vision which in Woodrow Wilson's case um, should be based on democratic states. It's not entirely, of course, but that, that was his original hope. The story of American development as a democracy could be a story repeated elsewhere. Um, and in many respects, this is an alternative to the international order which had been created after 1815, after after the last great war in Europe, the, the, the Napoleonic Wars. Then the global order rested very largely on two instruments. One was, was the Congress system, the idea that, that the great powers would meet if there were a dispute and, and resolve it. And, and as late as uh, 1914, Edward Gray, had, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, had summed up that vision as a way of coping with international crises. Uh, but it had fallen into comparative disuse by 1914. And the second presumption within the old international order was that a balance of power would produce an equilibrium which would make for peace. In other words, if one country became overmighty, as um, Napoleonic France had become, or as some eyes Germany was to become uh, in the early 20th century, uh, then other countries would gang up against that power and, and, and keep it in uh, comparative subordination, prevent it becoming dominant, um, and so keep a balance within Europe. Woodrow Wilson had expressly rejected that, saying, look, this didn't prevent war in 1914. We need something that is more transparent um, and something that has a proper regulatory mechanism. And that's what the League of Nations promises. Until the early 1930s, uh, the optimists might think it's working. The United States, of course, failed to join because when Woodrow Wilson returned to the United States, uh, they wouldn't ratify what was effectively a, a blow to the United States' sovereign power. It's handing a degree of state authority over to a multilateral organization. Um, but for the rest of the world, it seemed as though that might hold. But in the early 1930s, two powers in particular, both of them victors in 1919, Japan and Italy, uh, lead the way in undermining the authority of the League. Uh, and as we all know, that um, the, the League did not prevent increasing crises during the 1930s. What sort of internal uh, situations in, in the countries post the armistice were driving political and social change? The big fear in, in, in 1919 is the fear of communism. And it's communism in two forms. One, one is growth of socialism within individual countries as a result of the war. That fear could be exaggerated because uh, many socialists actually defended their countries during the war. Indeed, most socialists defended their countries during the war. So French socialism, French socialists had against many people's expectations in 1914 recognized it was more important to defend France in that year rather than to undermine it. Um, and similarly, German socialists, uh, the German Socialist Party was the largest socialist party in the world in 1914, had also, uh, the majority of them, voted for war credits in 1914. But what those socialists expect with the end of the war is that there will be a reward. There will be political and social reform as the quid pro quo for their commitment to the national war effort. It, that can be handled, it would seem, within existing governmental structures. It doesn't necessarily have to mean revolution. And um, 
the Labour Party in Britain would be a, a classic case for a party that is prepared to work with the grain of government to achieve reform um, rather than revolution. But what is increasing the fear of socialism is the external spread of Bolshevism. The Bolshevik Party in Russia is committed to uh, the idea of world revolution. It uh, is a minority party or had been a minority party, surprised in many respects that Russia, the most backward country in Europe, it seemed had been the, the agent of major revolution. And it anticipates that the more advanced industrialized countries will themselves go through revolution very quickly. Um, and of course, the war ends in 1918, 1919 with revolutions in Germany and in Austria and in Hungary. So there is there is a good chance that's going to happen. And the concern throughout the period 1919 to probably 1920-21, 19, when Soviet expansion is checked both in the Baltic states and and on the frontiers of Poland. Uh, the fear is that Bolshevism will spread from Russia into Eastern Europe, but ultimately will take hold in Germany and Austria. Um, and if that's the case, um, then you know, in many people's eyes, there's no knowing where it will be held. So, so Bolshevism, Bolshevism is and, and socialism are seen together and are seen together as a threat to the existing order. Um, and then, of course something that's much less obvious perhaps in 1919-1920 but we'll see it will seem increasingly uh, the threat by the 1930s is the rise of fascism uh, in the early 1920s there's only one country that becomes fully fascist um, and, and that is Italy under through through Mussolini's seizure of power but this is a movement that has grown from the trenches uh, uses much of the vocabulary of, of frontline soldiering embodies many of the aspects of militarism which a prolonged war has inflicted on otherwise civic and, and, and uh, civilian population. What about um, the rise of sort of ideas of nationalism and national independence? Are, are they a major issues in in countries in Europe during the sort of immediate post-war period? Yes, nationalism is 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 uh, and the idea of national independence is the touch paper that makes much of the situation so volatile. It it, it the notion that the nation and the state should be aligned is there before 1914, but it's held in check by empires which uh, which are multinational. The entry of the United States to the war is really what enables nationalism in a way that hasn't happened before. So to take one example, which is, which is the Austro-Hungarian Empire, an empire which in 1914 has um, 13 or 14 different national groupings, each with their own languages and cultures, and which tries, as all the national empire, multinational empires largely try to do, to make a virtue of multinationality, saying that this is uh, an example of how a civilized society can behave. Initially, during the course of the war, Austria-Hungary's opponents, Britain and France specifically, are reluctant to exploit those national divisions. There are groups, particularly in, in London, who want to agitate for the independence of national groupings within uh, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, but the fear is that if you do that, if you allow the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what will happen is that the Germans within Austria will ultimately form part of a greater Germany. So all you'll do is create an even larger Germany and so unbalance uh, the European balance of power. What changes that is, above all, the entry of the United States to the war, because the United States, with large ethnic minorities in its own electorate, particularly from Eastern Europe, is very ready to acknowledge the rights of those national groupings to independent statehood 
partly for domestic political reasons. The Polish vote or the Czech vote both matter in, um, in the United States in, and, and in American elections. And Woodrow Wilson commits himself in, in January 1918 to the principle of national self-determination. Now, that may just be pie in the sky when the empires are intact, but when the empires collapse, what that means is that you need to fight your corner for your national group in order to make sure that you do get state recognition as a consequence of the collapse of the empire. Um, so if there is a, an obvious misstep, if you like, what we would see is, is in many respects, a, both a sensible and logical way of organising states that they should be defined by ethnicity. Um, and what would seem to be, in inverted commas, a fair principle, then this is it. It really does mean that, that groups that have lived in harmony together very often for centuries uh, are thrown against each other for the first time. And some of the things they do to each other would now be called ethnic cleansing, genocide. Uh, these are, are real atrocities being committed against people of other ethnicities. Uh, the massacre of Turks by Greeks and Greeks by Turks is, is one case in point, but also similarly the movement of peoples, the movement of Germans out of Alsace-Lorraine uh, after the reoccupation of Alsace-Lorraine by France uh, in 1918-1919 is another example. And what were the long-term consequences of this period of conflict, internal strife and revolution um, that followed the, the armistice? In many respects, this is, this is what makes Europe, Asia and the Middle East for the 20th century, uh, particularly when we view it from hindsight. Um, you can see that the outbreak of the First World War is precipitating the the fault lines that will give rise to two world wars, to civil war, to cold war, uh, to conflict um, in, in the former Ottoman Empire and across the Middle East for the rest of the century. In a way, that can be too deterministic because although there is a line between 1914 to 1923 um, and what happens certainly up until the end of the Cold War, you need, of course, to factor in other things. Um, contingency still matters. You still have to accommodate the rise of Hitler. You still have to accommodate the fact that the British and the French are not actually really going to support Poland in 1939, that there will be a German-Soviet pact, that an Israeli state will be created at the end of the Second World War in a way that, that, that um, Britain was not ready to create a new Israeli state after the end of the First World War. Uh, so there are still things to happen in the 20th century. But at many points during the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century, people, when they try to cast blame, will go back to those who were trying to end the First World War and the failures that they encountered as peacemakers in doing so. Which leads me to my penultimate question. Do you think there are any lessons we can learn from this sort of period of history, 1918 to 1923? There's one big lesson which we on the whole don't pay much attention to. Those who study international relations devote an awful lot of time to discussing why wars break out, discuss the causes of war, um, and on the whole don't provide us with very helpful answers even when they do that. They pay much less attention to how wars are ended. Um, it's a sad truth. It seems to be much easier to go to war uh, than to end a war. It seems to be much easier to make war than to make peace. And the First World War is a classic illustration of that point. It takes just about as long to make the peace, even in the short term, that is the years 1919 to 1923, as it did to fight the First World War. And even then, the job is not done. Because what war of that scale and intensity does is two things. I mean, first of all, it leaves a legacy of animosity and hatred. Once you've started killing people, it's quite hard 
to forgive and forget. Um, and secondly, the scale of the war generates ambition. The scale of the war generates, the scale of the loss generates ambition. How can you possibly engage in something as significant as the First World War without seeing a demonstrable return? Uh, and for many people, there is no demonstrable return. So there's a sense of frustration, a sense of disillusionment. Uh, and that uh, is something which has to work its way out, uh, work its way through during the course of the century. And finally, Hugh, where can people learn more about your work? Well, I've written far too much. <laughs> um, I've written a short history of the First World War. I'm still writing my big history of the First World War, when I, the book I once took in 1980. On these issues specifically, I've just done a series of podcasts uh, with Chrome 360 uh, on peacemaking, which tries to a series of nine podcasts, not yet all released, but they, but which tries to relate what happens in the war to the effort to settle the war and create peace in its aftermath, uh, and to show how some of these um, solutions uh, have long roots and equally why some states remain frustrated because they don't get what they want. Hugh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. Thanks very much indeed. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>